0: Hello, I'm Ronnie Lutz. This is The Liner Project. We are on to episode 7 of season 1, Beastie Boys, Sounds of Science. My voice is a little wacky today. I've been a little sick. I don't know if I'm sick or if I have some allergy issues. I definitely don't think I have COVID, but over the last couple of days my nose has been a little stopped up and my voice has been a little weird. So if you hear this, and you're wondering what's happening, it's probably that. I definitely don't feel bad, but my nose is stopped up. The last couple of episodes, we focused on things in Missouri. Some disasters, some earthquakes, and Times Beach. There'll be no Missouri this episode. Also, the last couple of weeks were songs about country bands, and this week, we are moving on to some rap. Like I said, we're moving on to the Beastie Boys. Before we get there, though, I wanted to talk about the end of this season. Each season consists of 10 episodes, and we are at 7, So we are approaching the end. I did a disservice to women in this season and to songs of bands not of the U.S. So while coming up with songs for the next season, I've paid more attention to those sorts of things. I would also ask that if you have some favorite songs that have interesting historical references in them, please let me know, and I'll add them to my list to research. That doesn't necessarily mean they will show up, but I would like to research them. It's fun for me to research these, and I spend quite a lot of time doing it but I also spend quite a lot of time having fun doing it and thanks for your help and now we'll go on to this show. This song is by the Beastie Boys. It's one of my favorite bands as I say every week. The Beastie Boys started out as a hardcore underground punk band in New York City. They were originally named the Young Aborigines. They actually used that line in one of their songs later and right off the top of my head I cannot remember the name of the song and I didn't write it down so there you have it. I know the line is, the original young aboriginals. Anything other than that? I can't remember right now. But it did, this did make me wonder, does underground just mean they weren't famous? What does underground mean? I've always kind of wondered about that. Dirk Bentley, which is one of Vic Hudson's favorite singers, he started out as alt-country. And I remember listening to him when he was alt-country. But then he became famous. And now he's country. I'm not sure. I don't... Genres are all weird anyway. Just people trying to categorize stuff that probably doesn't need to be categorized. They did change their name to the Beastie Boys. They had an underground, we'll put that in quotation marks, underground hit with a rap-rock fusion song called Cookie Puss. It was based on a prank call by the band to Carvel Ice Cream. I'll put a link in the show notes for it. It's kind of fun. The Beasties basically switched from punk to rap about this time and joined with Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons of Death Jam. They also lost some band members and came to the Beastie Boys that you know now, the three Beastie Boys that are famous. Out of this marriage came the album License to Ill, that was released in 1986. I loved it at the time, being a stupid white dude in the 80s, but I don't think it holds up today. Well, I know it doesn't hold up today. It's a kind of a misogynist frat boy romp. It was, however... A huge success for them. Just happened to be the biggest selling rap album of the entire 1980s and it, trust me, it should not have been. There were some absolutely tremendous rap albums out in the 80s but here we are. I can't slash won't necessarily speak for the beasties but I'm going to right now. From what I've read they really disliked the people that they had become during that period. The frat boy misogyny started out as a joke but became who they were and it kind of grated heavily on them. They broke away from Def Jam and Rick Rubin and moved to California. They signed with Capitol Records and made arguably their best album, Paul's Boutique, even though it would be considered a commercial flop. It is considered a commercial flop. Maybe now it's not. Maybe they have sold a bunch since then. But at the time, it was definitely a commercial flop. You could do an episode about each of these songs on the album because it is, it's just such a dense album. Paul's Boutique has great songs, such as Shadrack, Hey Ladies, and Shake Your Rump. It also has a song we're going to talk about today, The Sounds of Science. Now here we go, jumping science, jumping it all over. Like bumping around the town like when you're driving a Range Rover. Expanding the horizon, air. expanding the parameters, expanding the rhymes of soccer MC amateurs. First verse mentions all kinds of great stuff, as most all Beastie Boys songs do. Just chock full of references to other things. But first of all, we're going to start with dropping science, which means telling the truth or educating people. Then they talk about Isaac Newton, who we'll briefly get back to later. And they mention Ben Franklin. I'm sure every American, and probably most other people, although I don't didn't go to school anywhere other than America, we were taught the story of Ben Franklin and the kite. That happened in June of 1752. If you haven't heard the story, I'll let Ben Franklin tell it in his own words. As soon as any of the thunderclouds come over the kite, the pointed wire will draw the electric fire from them, and the kite, with all the twine, will be electrified, and the loose filaments of the twine will stand out every way and be attracted by an approaching finger. And when the rain has wet the kite and twine so that it can conduct the electric fire freely, you will find. It stream out plentifully from the key on the approach of your knuckle. At this key the vial may be charged, and from electric fire thus obtained. Spirits may be kindled, and all the other electric experiments be performed. At this key the vial may be charged, and from electric thus obtained spirits may be kindled, and all the other electric experiments be performed, which are usually done by the help of a rubbed glass globe or tube and thereby the sameness of the electric matter with that of lightning completely demonstrated. A couple of things about Franklin's kite experiment. One, it wasn't about discovering electricity. Electricity had been known to exist for more than a thousand years in the form of static electricity. And you you can see that he talks about that with the rubbed glass globe or tube. Franklin was trying to demonstrate the connection between lightning and electricity. And two, Franklin's kite didn't get struck with the lightning, thankfully for him at least. It probably would have electrocuted him. He did, however, catch some electricity in his glass globe laden jar. The electricity that he caught was based on the ambient electrical charge from the storm. Franklin won the Copley Medal handed out by the Royal Society Council. This medal is given mostly every year, and it's the oldest scientific award in the world. The first medal was given in 1731, and most recent one was given in 2020. The first woman recipient was Dorothy Crowfoot Hodgkin in 1976. What is that like? 300 years of white men winning, and there hasn't been another woman since either. And this sent me down a rabbit hole of surnames. I was interested in Hodgkin's middle maiden name, Crowfoot. I was thinking that maybe she was Native American, but she was British, and I had to keep searching to find out why she was named Crowfoot. I went to Ancestry.com and found her relatives back to the early 1700s, but nothing. And then I found it. Well, maybe I found it. The name is derived from the old English words, Craw or Crawa meaning crow, and fought, meaning foot. The name Crawford is also closely related with the same crawwa at the beginning, meaning crow, and ford at the end, and ford in Old English meant crossing, like fjord. Anyway, not exactly where we were uh, supposed to go with that, but I thought it was interesting. In Franklin's time, the Copley Medal was given for outstanding achievements in research in any branch of science. Franklin wanted on account of his Curious Experiments and Observations on Electricity. Experiments and Observations on Electricity is a book that Franklin wrote in 1751. Franklin, however, wasn't the first to discover the correlation of lightning and electricity. A French physicist named Thomas-Francois Dalibard, sorry for the pronunciations, not so good at that. Thomas-Francois Dalibard had used another one of Franklin's experiment proposals to get electricity from a lightning just one month prior to the kite experiment. On May 10th, 1752, Dalibard used a 40-foot tall metal rod with wine bottles as impromptu laden jars to extract electricity. Well, <laughs> that was quite the aside for just one line in a song, so maybe we should move on. The next verse we'll be talking about, and who is mentioned is. Constantly on, constantly on, the fountain youth, not is a word of birth. The Beasties say Ponce de Leon, constantly on, but in Spanish it would be Ponce de Leon. Juan Ponce de Leon, to be exact. I'll stick with Ponce de Leon because I'm a redneck who has problems with words, so I'll stick with the easy version. This verse has kind of always cracked me up, but was Ponce de Leon constantly on the Fountain of Youth? Of course he wasn't on Robotron. We'll get back to Robotron in a little bit. When I was a kid... We learned exactly one thing about Ponce de Leon and that was that he died searching for the fountain of youth alluded to in the Beastie Boys lyrics as most things you learn in history at a young age it was the half truth bordering on complete falsehood Ponce de Leon was born in Leon Spain to a noble family hence the name de Leon which means of Leon it is thought that he was on the second voyage to the West Indies with Cristoforo Colombo Christopher Columbus in 1493 Eventually, he became the governor of San Juan Bautista. That's what Puerto Rico was called at the time. Some local indigenous peoples, the Taino, told him about a magical spring that would rejuvenate anyone that drank out of it. This spring, our fountain was located on the island known as Bimini. The Spanish crown encouraged Ponce de Leon to find more lands. While searching for Bimini, he landed on the coast of what would become Florida. And it would become Florida quickly, because that's what he named it. He named it La Florida because his discovery came during the time of the Easter Feast, which is known as Pasqua Florida. At least, hope those pronunciations are close to correct. Nowhere in any of the paperwork given to him by the king to find Bimini and find more lands talked about the Fountain of Youth. The story gained traction based on some early historians saying that he had been searching for it. They each had reasons to disparage Ponce de Leon, if in fact he was searching for it, it would have been secondary to searching for gold and more slaves. That was kind of the key goal of every conquistador. More gold, more slaves. More gold, more glory, more God, more slaves. I don't know how those all interact with each other, but that's how they, that's what he was doing. Now what is Robotron? Robotron was a game that I loved as a kid. It was an arcade game that had two joysticks instead of a joy, one joystick and a button. Most games at the time had a joystick and a button or maybe had a joystick and a bunch of buttons. But Robotron just had two joysticks. The left joystick you would move around and that would move you around on the board and the right joystick allowed you to shoot in one of eight different directions. The original game as created by Eugene Jarvis and Larry DeMar started out as a game where you hoarded the robots together and warped them away. But after gameplay Jarvis said pacism has its limits. Gandhi, the video game, would have to wait. It was time for some killing action. The game was changed to the frantic shooting action that it is known for today. The name is actually Robotron 2084 because the game is set in the year 2084 when Robotrons have turned against humans in a revolt. They used the year 2084 because they were infatuated with the George Orwell book 1984 which coincidentally they had nothing to do with this. I guess that's what coincidentally means. I just finished reading it again last week. But because the game was being developed in 1982, they didn't figure the world would change that much in two years, so they changed it to the year 2084. I read that they liked 1984, but I'm not sure what Robotron has to do with 1984. There were no robots or Robotrons in Orwell's 1984. There certainly were not any sentient robot overlords. Oh well, that's their story. They can stick to it if they want. I'm not going to argue with the people that created the game. Here's the game's conceit though. You are the last hope of mankind. Due to genetic engineering error, you possess superhuman powers. Your mission is to stop the Robotrons and save the last human family. I'll put a link in the show notes to a promo video that Williams put out in 1982. It's over 8 minutes long, but it's worth watching. Oh, and this game isn't actually winnable. It just kept going on forever, or until you died, which usually happened fairly quickly. Now we'll move on to the last verse that I wanted to talk about. Like Galileo, drop the orange. Cheech Wizard, like a lot of other Beastie Boys, references it's a very deep cut. It's about an underground comics character. There we go with underground again. They're everywhere today. Created by artist Vaughn Bold. Not that important in this episode, but a funny little wizard if you want to look into it. Cheech Wizard is mostly not safe for work, so if you do look at it, you know, don't let your children also read it. The last line of this song is where we'll get to Isaac Newton and Galileo. Galileo has been called the father of observational astronomy, father of modern physics, and father of modern science. He had a lot of kids they were pretty darn important. He actually didn't have any kids, I don't think. Anyway, Galileo Galilei was born in Pisa in 1564. He went to the University of Pisa and didn't graduate. Galileo was a college dropout just like me. Woohoo! He might have been just a wee bit smarter though. He went to school for medicine, but didn't enjoy it, so he continued studying math on his own and went back to the University of Pisa as a math teacher. I mean, I went and studied history, didn't graduate, now I'm doing a history podcast. I will probably never be known as the father of the history podcast, though. I don't know who is, maybe Mike Duncan, but it definitely won't be me. Some say that Galileo invented the telescope. He didn't, but he did make it better than the people that did, and he discovered that the moon had craters and mountains. Prior to that, people thought the moon was smooth and made of cheese. I don't think they actually thought that. Well, maybe they did. I don't know. He discovered moon. He called them stars, orbiting Jupiter. And although this sounds innocuous, this caused huge, huge problems. Aristotle had stated that all heavenly bodies orbited the Earth, which happened to be the view of the Catholic Church at the time. No one questions the Catholic Church. The line about Galileo dropping an orange is referencing experiments that he may have done from dropping spheres of different mass from the Leaning Tower of Pisa. Luckily, he was in Pisa, so he had his tower that he could, you know, go to the side of and drop stuff off, and it leaned, so that was perfect. Galileo demonstrated that objects of different mass fell with the same acceleration, once again disproving Aristotle. Aristotle said that objects fall at the speed proportional to their mass. Galileo also theorized that in a vacuum, items would fall at the exact same speed, no matter their mass. And this was proven by David Scott from the Apollo 15 moon mission. I'll link to the video in the show notes, but he dropped a hammer and a falcon feather and they hit the moon at the exact same time. It amazes me that a dude in the 1600s can think about stuff like this and then be proven correct hundreds of years later when people went to the moon. Absolutely unbelievable. I can barely think about what I want for breakfast and Galileo is thinking that if he drops something in a vacuum, he's thinking about the mass and the speed. (laughs) Galileo probably never did drop an orange but there are stories of him demonstrating this with grapes and other fruit. I'm sure those are all apocryphal stories. Most historians believe that Galileo probably never dropped anything from the Leaning Tower of Pisa based on him never mentioning it in any of his writings, but still came up with the law of falling bodies and is credited with the discovery. I think the reason the beasties use orange is for a couple reasons. One, it's a juxtaposition of the apple that is said to have fall, fell on Isaac Newton's head. And of course, that didn't happen either. Newton did, however, witness apples dropping from trees, and he noticed that they always fell straight down, never sideways or up. This helped him develop the law of universal gravitation. The other reason they might have used orange has been speculated as the last line, because no word in the English language rhymes with it. Well, there's actually one. Orange. It's a portion of a fern in which asexual spores are created, which probably doesn't come up while rapping very often. Galileo, in addition to inspiring Newton, caused him more issues with the Catholic Church. Galileo, with his Jupiter experiment and his belief in heliocentrism, helio meaning sun and centrism meaning center, Aristotle and the church believed that the earth was the center of the universe. Galileo defended heliocentrism in many texts and letters. He stated that the Bible was an authority on faith and morals, not science. Hmm. By 1615, his manuscripts were given to to the Roman Inquisition, or... The Supreme Sacred Congregation of the Roman and Universal Inquisition. That's quite the name. In 1615, an inquisitorial commission said the following about heliocentrism, It is foolish and absurd in philosophy, and formally heretical since it explicitly contradicts in many places the sense of the Holy Scripture. Pope Paul V told Galileo to abandon completely the opinion that the sun stands still at the center of the world and the earth moves, and henceforth not to hold teach or defend it in any way whatsoever, either orally or in right. Galileo stayed on the down low for the next decade, but in the 1620s, Pope Urban VIII asked him to write a book giving arguments for and against heliocentrism. He named the character that defended the Aristotelian geocentric view simplicio, or simplicio, simplicio, simplicio. simplicio. This word has the connotation of simpleton, sort of like me. The Pope made the assumption that Simplicio referred to him and Galileo was brought back for another inquisition. In 1633, he was found vehemently suspect of heresy. He was sentenced to a formal imprisonment and stayed in house arrest for the rest of his life. The book he had written was banned. Actually, anything that he had written or would write also was banned. Galileo died under house arrest in 1642 at the age of 77. The ban on reprinting his works was lifted in 1718. Pope Benedict XIV authorized the complete printing of all of his works in 1741. By 1758, the prohibition of books based on heliocentrism was lifted, and in 1835, all official opposition of the Catholic Church was gone. On Halloween 1992, Pope John Paul II finally acknowledged that the Church had made an error in condemning Galileo, John Paul said that the theologians that had condemned Galileo did not recognize the formal distinction between the Bible and its interpretation. This led them unduly to transpose into the realm of the doctrine of the faith, a question which, in fact, pertained to scientific investigation. Let me say that again. This led them to transpose into the realm of the doctrine of faith, a question which, in fact, pertained to scientific investigation. That's pretty darn deep, and you can kind of see how that pertains to the world today. Thanks, Pope John Paul, for finally acknowledging what should have been acknowledged in 1642 or before, and unfortunately today, some people still transpose their faith and science. This episode is a little longer than I normally do, but I got into researching all these references, and they each had an interesting story, and I wanted to talk about all of them. But this does end the Beastie Boys' Sound of Science episode. And the homework for the next episode is... The band that sings this song is from Ireland, although this song is about America. The lead singer, along with Midge Ure, created the charity supergroup Band-Aid. The song was released in 1979 about an incident that took place earlier in 1979 at Grover Cleveland Elementary School in San Diego. The song is also on the My Playlist is Killer shirt and the actual playlist itself. The link for the shirt will be in the show notes. It was designed by Shauna and it's absolutely brilliant. The link for the playlist on Spotify and Apple Music will also be in the show notes. It's a killer October playlist. You can reach me at The Liner Project on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram, and TikTok. I'm also Ronnie Lutz on Twitter. And my dad has Ronnie Lutz on Instagram, so I'm Ron Lutz over there. You can visit the website at thelinerproject.com. And you can email me at ronnie at the liner I appreciate everyone listening and doing their homework. If you could do me a favor and rate in a podcast wherever you listen, that would be fantastic. Have a good one.